Welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel. Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me. Hello and welcome to Drunk Church. I am Cosima B. Concordia. And I'm Aurora Laybourne. This is our second episode of our second season. We started with our holiday special on trigger warnings and we've decided going forward that this is going to be our villain arc. So (laughs) in the way that we may have drink the blood of God in season one. This is all about being baptized in it, being covered in that blood, embracing the monstrous as we explored in hatred of sex, the perverted, the marginal, and the liminal. We are going to embrace all of those things and explore them in their fullness. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to start to go into that through a original work, our very own Aurora Laybourne's paper, Cavarero's repugnance, where we're going to explore the figure of the Medusa and the unspeakability of sexual violence. (laughs) Thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm really excited to be sharing this work. This paper is actually one of the first projects that I took up in graduate school, and it's had its own traumatic history that I'm sure that we'll have reason and time to explore. Just to give a little bit of intellectual background or just some background on the paper. This was written in a seminar that focused on the work of contemporary Italian feminist Adriana Cavarero. And if I'm completely blunt and honest, I had a very miserable time working with this figure. I think that there's a problem in much of contemporary feminism where you have people that have managed to sort of climb up the ladder and their first impulse is just to pull it up behind them. So the work of Cavarero focuses on the ways in which we are ontologically tied to others, which means that we ought to understand ourselves as situated in relationships of interdependence, of vulnerability, (laughs) and of care. So it really highlights the importance of the maternal. So it's pretty classical care ethics. And I think the issue for me is, or the thing that became an issue as I was working with these texts is that Adriana Cavarro writes a lot about storytelling and selfhood. She writes a lot about our vulnerability. She writes a lot about the importance of going back through the history of philosophy and highlighting the roles of women. But she doesn't cite other women. She doesn't work with other women. She doesn't read contemporary feminists and in interviews when asked about this she's like well I have my training and my training is the canon like I'm a philosopher it's the canon and by the canon she means that she'll work with a lot of (laughs) Plato sometimes she picks up more contemporary figures like Agamben or a Rigori minimally you can't even call I think a Rigori or Kristeva contemporary feminists anymore I don't think so. Yeah, like when were, when were they contemporary? I don't know. I think there has to be like a date. 
I think that like with feminism, it should be where can we situate them in the history of feminist activism? And does that mean that their work is contemporary insofar as do they continue to engage with the contemporary issues by actually supporting the work of young people or actually supporting the issues that contemporary feminists are being faced with. I think that that is like very much kind of the difference between the ways that your academic world is often so divorced from the actual conversations that are being had. And then when Mm -hmm. those conversations are taken up, it's always in this like very objectified way. And it's very difficult to get them taken on in a way that actually takes them seriously. Whereas there's always so much theory, you know, being done also often by plenty of people who do have like some level of academic training, like you included in the public realm, but that that is always divorced from this very like medieval authoritarian structure that is the academy. Mm-hmm. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah Cavarro is definitely a great example of the sort of hypocrisy. Again, given the importance of storytelling and given the importance of singularity, but then also like the plurality and the polyvocality of philosophy. And so she famously always has a travel companion, but it's like usually a younger woman sort of lackey. <laughs> and then this is Cavarero. Adriana Cavarero, yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're just mm-hmm. like, it's just <laughs> nice. <laughs> So in interviews, when she talks about her work in relation to contemporary scholarship, she's like, I am an Arendtian, I study Plato, but then I also engage with Butler, who's a genius, Agamben, who is a genius. So it's like me, the canon, and the people who I think are geniuses. (laughs) Yeah, it's like not even to unpack like the whole problem of the genius and if that's even a fucking thing, probably not. I would say now. <laughs> Where are the women in philosophy? Let me go back to find the one example of a, of a female character in Plato, but let me just ignore the fact that there have always been women philosophers doing philosophy. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty um, blatantly hypocritical, and it just is a blatant reproduction of the problem that ostensibly her work is supposed to be addressing. So... This all suffices to say that I was really, really struggling in this seminar. I was really, really struggling with reading books that were published like in the early 2000s, like as recently as like 2014, that were about the maternal ethics of care that ignored that entire tradition. So it ignored the strong history of maternal care ethics in the Anglophone philosophical tradition. It ignores the critiques of the family and of the figure of the mother. It ignores the work that's being done that troubles and sort of offers a more fluid understanding of the feminine figure. (laughs) So it is more of this goddess feminism to be polemic. (laughs) One of the necessary um, requirements for this course was that I give a presentation. So given my interest in trauma, And given my own experience as a survivor, I thought, well, maybe this is going to be the space that I can do some productive work. So I elected to present a particular work by Cavarero's called Horrorism. So it's naming contemporary violence. And so reading this book, which presents itself as creating a vocabulary with which to understand violence that otherwise is made invisible or 
I was really shocked with how, again, how violent this book was. So, so she's concerned about how when we look at scenes of extreme violence, we don't actually see the victims or the survivors. Instead, we just see these scenes of mutilation and that invites us to side with the perpetrator. Or I think that this is actually a, a very charitable reading of what ostensibly Cavarero is trying to do. But when you read through this book, there are these scenes of extreme violence and they are brutal. They're highly gendered. They're highly eroticized. They're also very racialized. And outside of some discussion of the Holocaust, which given the authors that she was working with, so with Amore, she's sort of dealing with themes of anti-Semitism. She ignores the ways in which power operates and she ignores the complexities that affect the ways in which we experience or in which we see violence. So let me unpack that or maybe I can restate that better. So she describes all these really intense scenes of mothers killing their children, of female suicide bombers, which comes off as like very Islamophobic and also like a very essentializing view of Islamic women, which is a problem right now in in French feminism particularly, but then also I guess Cabrero is God, Italian yes. feminism. So like these are the contemporary feminists who are just pulling up that ladder, who just have nothing good to say about women of color, especially um, when it has anything to do with women in Islam. So let's just <laughs> put a pin in that for now. <laughs> so reading through this book, I'm just like, wow, um, this makes a lot of things invisible. It makes sexism invisible. It makes racism invisible. And also, like, it makes sexual violence invisible. And this is something that's characteristic of a lot of her work. So especially if she's worried about narratives and especially if she's worried about the violence that women are subject to, and it is a very essentializing notion of women, a very classical notion of women that she's operating with. I'd love to be challenged on that. I'd love for someone to like pull a quote and to show me otherwise. I haven't been convinced, so <laughs> put me in my place. Um, but also, good luck. Or don't even try. <laughs> <laughs> So I was really, really angry and like, honestly, a little bit disgusted by this book. But something that I noticed is that she uses as a leitmotif the figure of Medusa. So when she's trying to talk about these moments of extreme violence and our disgust and our repugnance about them in a way that I think was, is a little bit unproductive. It's like, oh, we see these things. It's disgusting. Let me just describe the disgust to you or describe these things that evoke disgustingness. And then I'm just going to move on to my next vignette. I was waiting for the payoff. I was just like, wow, it just seems very exploitative. And then I thought, well, let me just reappropriate this figure of Medusa. Let me just actually find something productive about this book. And so I sort of combing through it, found that every time this figure of Medusa showed up, she was always described as repugnant. And also um, knowing the history of Medusa who was herself a victim of sexual violence, it just seemed to be a wonderful example of the making invisible of the victim. Like, especially in a work that is, again, ostensibly about bringing to the fore that invisibility, bringing to the fore our inability to appropriately act towards people who have experienced extreme violence. So 
my work then argues that we ought to attend to this notion of repugnance. So I think that offers like a little bit of background and we'll dive deeper into the history of Medusa and the notion of repugnance in Kavaru. So I think like one thing that immediately popped out to me in preparation for this episode, you know, which has been a long time coming, I, <laughs> I read uh, both horrorism and then I read your essay. And again, it, it like very much struck me in the, the same issues in a lot of the ways that we were unpacking other contemporary texts, like for instance, Hatred of Sex, where like the way that academia functions, it always has to be based off of these figures that have sort of been deemed canonically acceptable mm -hmm. and like the, th the only things you can pull off of. And like certainly, you know, like you're taking the figure of Medusa in sort of the ways that Cavarero is looking at her, there is very little about Cavarero that is actually necessary for your essay. Like it feels incredibly original and has very little to do with Cavarero in very much the same way that Hatred of Sex, like lots of the things that we really love about it seem to have some connection to Freud, but a very like tenuous connection. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like a consistent problem with like the structure of always having to, you know, work off of never ending canons mm -hmm. of these people who, um, are, you know, deemed geniuses or whatever. Yeah. Uh, by like the history of philosophy as opposed to, you know, the countless ones who are just kind of lost and not really, don't really have their place. Yeah. I guess that's just to say that it's a fantastic essay and it's much better than horrorism <laughs> in my, I, I, yeah, I think it had a lot more interesting things to say. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. My God, I, I got a little bit of pushback the other day because I described feminism or at least I described sometimes feeling as a feminist that I'm in a death cult. <laughs> <laughs> Real. <laughs> and I was like, what could you possibly mean by that? And I'm like, uh. <laughs> I feel like I'm about to get sacrificed. Okay. Mm -hmm. No, I, I yeah. yeah. Gonna take, drink the Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. Or just, I feel like there are, again, there are the geniuses and then we're all just venerating them. Kind of like, this is Cavarero. It's like, well, it really isn't, but I'm sort of expected to say that it is, or I'm expected to, to do the appropriate veneration of this figure who, again, I'm really disappointed like reading their work of their their failure or her failure. It kind of feels like academic philosophy is kind of venerating this canon of this pantheon of gods. Mm -hmm. And then you just have to like choose the appropriate one to, you know, like pay worship to in an essay. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, you know, and sometimes there's someone new added to the pantheon, but like usually like long after they're relevant. Oh my God. <laughs> 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 I went to a talk, like a Zoom talk, it's been like a year ago, from Carol Gilligan. So she wrote the book, like, In a Different Voice, I think is her the title. And it's considered one of the key texts in care ethics. And she, she talks about how we need to rethink ethics from this, like, feminine viewpoint. Or we need to think about the different insights that we can gain if we are critical of this old school Kantian model. And that's just to put it very simply. And so she basically during this talk reread or read a version of this chapter that she'd written like in the seventies or eighties. And she's like, I wonder why people aren't talking about abortion anymore. And then she just reads this essay that she wrote decades ago. And it's, and then like one of the audience members were like, we do talk about abortion. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Have you read anything? <laughs> 
Jesus. She's like, why don't she's like, why don't people engage with my work? And then she reads this work that she'd already published like decades ago. It's like, well, we, we do engage with it. We've kind of moved beyond. Like, why don't you engage with the contemporary work? Like, why why are you asking us this question? Like <laughs> Yeah, like maybe in the many decades. Past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that for me is like a big red flag. Like if uh, someone's like, why don't why don't people do anything with this social issue? It's like, well, are you connected at all to the people that are experiencing this social issue? Like, are you familiar with their responses to it? Like, maybe you need to do some research. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, of course, that's not to say that, you know, contemporary thinkers are always better than, like, older thinkers, yeah. you know? Like, like certainly Bataille <laughs> is one of my favorite theory writers to this day. And that is very much, I think, because lots of his stuff, like, resonates for me in a contemporary queer sense in a way that I don't think it resonated, you know, even during his own time for a lot of people. And so it's like, you know, you can always get new takes from texts and you can always get new context. Yeah. But the but the worship of it, it never leads to good places, especially when it's in a literal, like, <laughs> hierarchy, like academia. It's rough. Yeah, I think, like, very simply, uh, people should be reading more and maybe writing or speaking a little bit less like if you're in a position of power there hits a point where maybe your task is the task of citation so maybe gilligan like ought not to just be reading to an audience this thing that she published in the 80s maybe she should be again on the ground level like seeing what's being written by contemporary people or of like going back to the history of philosophy so if cavaro cares about the status of women and their voices then she ought not just to go to plato and be like well Here's the figure of Diatima. That's a woman. She's, she should look and be like, well, look, there are women throughout the history of philosophy who have voices. Let me let me read those. So, yeah, it's a work of citation. It's a work of we ought to read more. <laughs> so, yeah, let no one listen to this podcast and think that because we're critical of academia, we think that people should should stop reading certain figures or should read less. Read more, listen more, engage more. That's yeah. I love some Plato. Yeah. You know, do you? Yeah. Okay, well, like, sometimes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, roast me. <laughs> okay, so let's get into your essay. Okay. So, Cavarero will begin with her framework, and then I'll branch off to give an account of Medusa's story, and then to talk about how I think that that applies to contemporary issues surrounding sexual violence and also contemporary issues involving trauma and how we understand trauma to operate. So Cavarero, in introducing her project, looks at elements of terror and elements of horror. And so terror, through a kind of etymological unpacking of the term terror, she connects it to the impulse to flee during Moments of extreme terror, like the subject flees the site. Uh, horror, on the other hand, is connected to a freezing. So in moments of horror, we don't have the option of fleeing. Moments of horror are just so totalizing that the subject freezes. We also have, in her discussion of horror, like the first instance of the figure of Medusa being referenced. And then we also have this sort of subterranean or sort of underlying... Um, I don't want to give her too much credit for using this word repugnance because I totally think that it is completely <laughs> arbitrary that she used repugnance instead of 
abject or instead of disgust. I, I think that's the thing. It, yeah. Like very little of your essay I saw, I read in Horton. <laughs> like, like it just really felt like you just were thinking about the figure of Medusa and then like used Cavarero as, you know, like the justification for writing your essay. But yeah. like it wasn't about Cavarero at yeah. all, really. Yeah. I should probably look at the Italian to see if she uses the same word over and over again, or if it was just the translator that did it. Cavarro links terror to flight and horror to freezing. Do it in my presentation. There's now a whole cohort of people <laughs> that connect horror to repugnance and are just running with that term. Hmm. This is bullshit. Well, anyway, what's so interesting, or I gotta figure out how to uh, how to redirect. <laughs> um, so so I guess building off of this notion of horror, which is, again, tied to a frozenness, I thought, like, okay, um, I gotta do something productive with this. Let's let's do some etymological work on repugnance, which also has, has roots. Show me those roots. Yeah, those Latin roots. So the word repugnance comes from the Latin um, repugnantia, and forgive my Latin pronunciation, it is a dead language, so... <laughs> The ghosts are mad. The ghosts are mad. I'm gonna. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the ghosts of feminist philosophy. They're gonna cancel you, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in highlighting this term repugnance that is always connected to the Medusa, I went back to look at the roots of the term. So it has this Latin root, repugnantia. Um, which stands for resistance, contradictoriness, or an inconsistency, but also in the ways in which we use it in common language to say something is repugnant indicates a strong aversion or a distaste or an objection that we might have to something. So taking this linguistic history into account, I argue that repugnance has a twofold meaning, or at least that we can read a twofold meaning into Cavarero's use of it. So we can say, despite how distasteful this book might be. Despite Cavarero's actual work. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's why this project yeah. is Cavarero's repugnance. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. What we can do is we can look to see the ways in which we replicate horror and horrorism against the vulnerable through our repugnant treatment of them. So in the sense in which we look away in disgust, in the sense in which we are adverse to the narratives of the harmed, of the vulnerable, but also in the sense in which we, we kind of always experience a contradictoriness. So again, the contradiction of Cavarero and her work that claims to care about victims, but also just sort of misses the point, that claims to care about women's issues, but then also just fails to name any of them, that like fails to name sexual violence in a book about extreme gendered and sexualized violence. So I claim then for Cavarero, and I also think that this stands in much of our use of figures like Medusa, just in contemporary literary theory, or even in contemporary art, or even in the kind of memes that are being created to try to reclaim the villainous. So I say that Medusa is always a figure of repugnance. So that's the rereading or the mobilization of repugnance. So tell us what that means. Like, tell us about the myth of Medusa and what her being a figure of repugnance means. Okay, excellent. So 
Medusa has a lot of different origin stories and the most persistent or at least the one that seems to be repeated the most begins with her a beautiful woman so initially she was very very human and in fact it was due to her beauty that Neptune raped her in the temple of Athena and so we can trace this back or we can find this in Ovid in the Metamorphoses so Ovid writes they say that Neptune lord of the sea violated her in a temple of Minerva is it Ovid or Ovid it might be is it Ovid is it Ovid Latinists I don't care come at us Latinists get at us Ovid <laughs> Ovid okay anyway sorry <laughs> So in retaliation to the violation that happened in her temple, Athena slash Minerva retaliated by punishing Medusa. So she turned her hair into snakes and cursed her so that all that would look upon her would turn to stone. So after suffering, being raped, then she is punished for being raped, basically. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah. Athena is so upset by the fact that someone was raped in her temple. Like, she was like, oh my God, that's awful. My temple was sullied by this extreme act of violence. How dare this person be so beautiful as to be raped? Like, how dare this person experience this thing? And she punished her, she cursed her. And the punishment must go on to her as opposed to As opposed to Neptune. Athena is a, like, pretty key figure in this story of Medusa because she's also the one that helps Perseus. I don't know how to pronounce any of these people's names. So Perseus is Perseus. right, I think. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So she's the one that gives him the reflective bronze shield and the scythe that he used to behead her. So using the shield to avoid her direct gaze, he's able to sneak into the cave that she had retreated to and behead her in her sleep. She really didn't get the women standing with women no. memo. Uh-uh. I think Athena is like a really good like RBG feminist figure. <laughs> just, just your your classic liberal feminist in a high position of power. Yeah, the carceral breaking feminist. glass ceilings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she is. <laughs> Great, cool. And so Perseus is celebrated as a hero, and it is because he killed someone who was a victim of sexual violence. And even in death, her curse persisted. So the snakes still like would writhe and the face itself would still petrify people. So people would still be turned to stone when they like looked upon it. Like furthermore, it's described that her blood was toxic. So when it spilled on the ground, like it turned into snakes. Like she's just so disgusting and vile that there's nothing human about her, nothing relatable, nothing that's recognizable as a victim. It's just all poison, toxicity, all like weaponization, like her body is weaponized, like against the vulnerable arguably too, because who is it that you're using this shield against? Who are you exposing her gaze to, to people when they're fighting? It's, it's pretty extreme how History has really vilified this figure. The reproduction of the myth, it just instills this villainous image. And you can find this throughout like mythology. You can also see it as a repeated theme in history. She's literally used her decapitated head like of the rape victim is then literally used as a weapon yeah. by Perseus, the one who decapitated her. It's like, 
literally all of the people who victimized her, like, utilizing her even after death. Yeah. There's something that's also incredibly threatening. So I think there's two levels where her image ends up being weaponized. So there's in mythology, turning people into stone, then also the fact that it's like a head on a spike. It's like, if you transgress, this might happen to you. It's a replication of like what could possibly happen if you're a woman who misbehaves. So there's something that's really, really unsettling and there's something that's really, really horrifying about these scenes of women who in some way were marked as misbehaving or as having like failed to toe the line. And then so what we do is we plaster their image everywhere. And I think it, it acts as a warning to other women or to other marginalized folks, like don't transgress or this might happen to you. Even talking about the experience of being harmed in these like really explicit ways not to compare myself to Medusa, but any sort of talking about the experience of it, even within your own space, even even when you don't want anything, you know, like even when you're not asking for people to do anything, there still is like such a strange freezing mm-hmm. effect and this need for people to like distance themselves from it because of this like feeling of untouchability. It's a feeling that is like traumatizing <laughs> in its own way because it feels you just get the most insane reactions from people where even just them being someone who has to hear about it, like a way to like clean their hands of it is instead make you into someone who like it's easier to accept that like you're this crazy cave dwelling Gorgon. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so it's like, I think that we're in an interesting space right now, just how there is something about how the choice to speak about something in any way, even if it's it's not punitive, even if it's like literally just like talking about an experience of harm, like the mere mentioning of it is something that is a process that turns you into like somewhat of a monster Mm -hmm. in some people's eyes yeah in a way that is really uniquely disconcerting and I think that so many women and others I think it is violence that tends towards being gendered have experienced very unique gendered dynamics they're really hard to know what to do with because they're structurally made to make you feel isolated and alone and invisible yeah and invisible exactly I argue recognizing the violence that Medusa was subject to really brings out the most terrifying aspects of her appearance. And it isn't the monstrosity that she is presented as. It's the fact that the most horrifying aspect of her appearance is that it really stands for a metaphor of how we react to sexual violence. So it's a really useful way to symbolize horror insofar as that she was a woman who was raped and then punished for it. But then also how the audience, so everyone involved in the myth, and then also everyone who confronts this image, I think even still to this day, accepts and extends the violence through repetition. So, and we accept this repetition. So we accept these non-critical 
narratives or we accept the story of her just as a villain. Yeah, as a villain who was necessarily vanquished. She needed to die in order to be a part of Perseus's story in order to enshrine him as a hero, which then ended up enshrining her as a villain. So that makes her, I argue, a rape victim in the strongest sense, because not only did she endure the initial crime, uh, she was punished for it. And then everyone, literally everyone turns away from her. So <laughs> both because she's rendered alone, so isolated at the end of her life, that's how like Perseus finds her, he finds her alone in the cave, but then also no one could look at her. You can't look at her without being turned to stone. So I think it ends up being a really good way to describe how we fail to attend to the needs of victims. So we do just freeze up when we're told of any kind of story that makes us uncomfortable or makes us question our relationship to people that have harmed others that we are connected to exposes problems in what it means to be a bystander. So tell us more about that. Okay. So for a long time, and I think we still continue to tell ourselves, like, if you see something, say something, call people out, and then that turned into call people in. So it relies on a community to enforce a kind of accountability that's based on the necessity of recognizing something. And I think that there's really good research to point out that we fail to see things when it's inconvenient for us to see them. So this is betrayal blindness. And I think it also connects with work on DARVO. So DARVO is basically the system that is when someone who has done some sort of abusive behavior, one of the reactions to avoid being held accountable, like starts to build a counter narrative to basically like make the victim of the thing seem like the perpetrator to like make it feel like a both sides situation. So it's like, who can tell, you know, like <laughs> everyone did wrong here. It's not like playing the victim, quote unquote. It's specifically like victim blaming. Mm -hmm. deny attack reverse victim and offender yeah that's the thing that makes all of these conversations so thorny and so difficult to unpack because it is absolutely true that sometimes people are harmed in like really fucked up ways and then they are framed as actually the perpetrators of harm especially if the other person is you know more likely to be believed they're more likely to become the predator in the narrative yeah and so then it makes these conversations all very difficult and i think it's also important to understand that like darvo it's not just a attempt to demonize the other person but to muddy the water mm -hmm. to the extent that any bystander person just wants to like throw up their hands and not listen to anything mm-hmm and not want to like engage in any meaningful way and like supporting yeah. the person who has actually experienced some amount of harm. So just to apply Darvo, using this example of Medusa's deny, we have the fact that no accounts of the myth pay any attention to the extent to which Athena was part of the violence against her. So we have like the loss of the originary rape. We have the attack. So both 
connected to how she then becomes a monstrous figure. So she turns people into stone. She's ugly. She's disgusting. Also, the very literal attacking of Parsuis being sent to kill her. You have a kind of reversal then of victim and offender. So far as she's a villain and a monster that must be vanquished, she's no longer intelligible as a victim. She's only a weapon, an offender, a monster. Yeah. And I think you said, like, having been hacked apart, she no longer has a human form, nor is she recognizable. But it is not her death or the threat of her death which inspires horror. It is the repugnance toward the liminal space which she represents and the universality of the horror she symbolizes. What's also really important about the ways in which at least I I think we should think about repugnance is that there's a careful attending to narrative that we have to do. So it would be really easy just to quickly move over the leitmotif of Medusa. It would have been really easy for me to do that in Cavarero's book, but I had to like take a step back and be like, okay, what is it that I'm actually being shown here? Like what's being ignored? Oh, the story of this figure who actually was victimized or why is my initial response like to get uncomfortable when, when someone relates a narrative to me that, like forces me to question my relationship with someone who I, I didn't think capable of of mistreating someone. What I think is important is that we attend to these feelings of disgust and think about who's the target of them and why are they the target? Why is it that we are so ready to villainize victims? How is it that we can retarget those feelings productively? Or how is it that we can recognize, like, wait, I, I feel uncomfortable, I feel disgusted, I feel like I'm ready to turn away from this person. Like, what does that expose about the relationships, like the power dynamics that I'm in right now? So how am I connected to a larger rape culture, a larger culture of endemic systematic violence? That's what I think is really useful here. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us about taboos, because, you know, we've talked about taboos. And in your paper, you talk about how one of the things about someone being a victim of sexual violence and talking about it that there is an intersection of multiple different taboos that causes the freezing, which then would be, you know, like the turning to stone of Medusa's gaze. So against talking openly about trauma, about violence, about sex, causes controversial gridlock, paralyzing the would-be supporter. The horror of the event and the ensuing repugnance causes people to become inert. Can you talk a little bit about that process? It's connected to some linguistic problems. So I just, I think that we don't yet have a vocabulary that understands violence in a way that doesn't implicate survivors because I'm not sure that there's a way to name traumatic events in a way that doesn't also question the extent to which victims are accomplices. And this is how you mentioned like Darvo muddies the waters. It's like, yeah, you end up with our vocabularies. There is always like, oh, there's two, there's two sides of the story, but when it comes to experiences of violation, there really can't be two sides because it's a subjective experience. So you can't possibly qualify or disqualify someone else's subjective experience because their narrative is the only thing that can give an account of it. So it, it's just like we're set up to fail from the beginning. I think also just given the nature of sexual violence, so the sight of the crime ends up being taboo. It's weird to call it a site of a crime, but because it's the body... <laughs> So the very side of the crime binds the survivor to it. You can't outlast your body or you can't leave it. You also can't thwart 
traumatic events with language. So to be in a position of domination means that you don't have the capacity to fight back or you are pushed to the limit of what those kinds of resistance are or the kinds of resistance that is available to you. There has to be a, a way to think about this that also doesn't just accept a kind of learned helplessness, and I'm wary of that, but I also just think it's really important the ways in which the vocabulary that we have to use to talk about these things ends up being very victim-blamey, even if it tries not to, like even with the best intentions, because there's always a, like, what could have been done? Mm -hmm. Or why did this happen? It's like, well, why did this happen? <laughs> Like, why does it matter why this happened? The point is, is that it happened. What can we do to redress it? Like, what can we do to handle it? So when we think about trauma or when we try to address it linguistically, all we end up doing is, again, muddying the waters. Like, traumatic events decontextualizes the meaning and use of no, for example. So sexual violence challenges the limits of logic and language also because there's no straightforward way to talk about what occurred. The narratives are often nonlinear. We often expect them to be told for the audience. So the victim's in a position to have to justify their feelings of hurt and to make their story both palatable, but then also horrifying enough to be indicative of a harm to other onlookers who are already primed or prepped to question and to be suspicious just by the fact that you're in a position to have to justify your hurt to others you're already sort of in an uphill battle i think there's this threefold freezing effect so there's the event itself from which the survivor cannot flee or like which sort of freezes the survivor uh, there's the paralysis of the people around the survivor who would be or who ought to be in a position to offer support but who don't and then there's also this mind-numbing aspect of the pervasiveness of sexual violence. So it is just business as usual. So I think that's the kind of gridlock of taboos, which is just bolstered through this combination of silence and disgust. It ends up creating a structure of re-traumatization. Mm -hmm. Recently, I got this video of, of just like all these pictures, you know, mostly naked, just like scene pictures for these very intimate and very like intense pictures of my body that were collaboratively taken. And because one of the things I asked for was for the Polaroids of me to be given back. And then like part of the rationale for burning them in this video and in a video was sent as proof was that he wouldn't let me use his art. And I think that there was something like so indicative about that, I guess, where it was like all pictures of me and my body that were like taken collaboratively, but there was still such a sense of possession. And then that was like, you know, so much of the problem, that sense of power was never, was never untangled. Like there was never space created where that like level of extreme power differential could be like actually untangled. It very much felt, you know, a very like re-traumatizing event to like see all these like very intimate pictures like burned one by one in this fire with all of the gendered and all of the other dynamics it felt again like it felt very violent it felt very threatening mm -hmm. and like I don't know if it was intended that way yeah. um but like also I guess the amount of like lack of understanding of power dynamic and there's just like a level of like obliviousness there to like the, mm -hmm. to the power he had that just felt really mind-blowing to me. It's funny, right? Because before all of this 
or like when this stuff was already kind of starting to happen, we made our horror of desire episode, which is all about how the vulnerability of extreme power exchange is inherently horrific, how it can turn to horror and it like requires like so much care. Thinking about the ways in which the bodies of the vulnerable, the bodies of survivors are weaponized and then used against them. So some other examples, or at least ways in which I would creatively apply this. I'm thinking of some of the more famous recent survivors of sexual assault or of rape who have been very public about their trials. So there's something that doesn't feel like it's in service of the vulnerable about there being a very heavily publicized case that is very overt. Like the violence is overt. The fact that an event occurred is clear. Like no one is denying it. So in the cases of Weinstein, in the cases of like Brock Turner, in the cases of Bill Cosby, like no one is denying that what occurred occurred. We're just trying to figure out if the voices matter enough for us to do something about it. And there's something that is almost punishing about putting someone, putting those survivors through those trials, questioning their experience, and then at the end of the day being like, well, statute of limitations over. Uh, there's something yeah. that's like very minimizing. And again, I'm not pro-trial. This is why I think that trials are very bad is because we're told like, oh, this is in service. But it actually, it's just like, Go to trial. You need to do that in order for it to be real. But then also don't, because even in these extreme cases, we're not going to do anything about it. It's a double bind. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. You're going to get punished either way. You just need to decide how you're going to be a victim. And it's this impossible bar of like what it means to be a good victim. And then there's no such thing, like first of all, because <laughs> the notion of a good victim is really based in a legacy of sexism, of white supremacy, like especially in American legal context. Also just philosophically, there's no good victim because there's no right way to respond to cases of extreme violence or any kind of violence. There might be better or worse ways to respond to the people around you, maybe, like if you're in a community, but like there's no rule book. We all handle it differently. But also the category of victim is just impossible. So there's no way to be a victim like because you're just going to be the villain of your own story. You're going to be... Mm -hmm the overreacting bitch you're going to be the person that went through this long expensive trial and then nope no charge it's wild it's just a weaponization yeah there's no unpacking levels of harm like when people have experiences especially in these like very charged positions of very real like interpersonal harm there's this assumption that everyone wants to ruin everyone else's life right yeah that you know you want to ruin reputations in a world where you do have sometimes these campaigns to deplatform people for things that are relatively minor that do seem extreme like this idea of kind of like recreating carceral frameworks to deal with the complete lack of of ways that people who are harmed, especially like women, the recourses that they have. So I think there have been these communal movements, but then that gets to this place where there's been such a backlash against that, that then anyone that just expresses harm at all, like even literally just talking about your own experience is seen as 
the real bad action. The real transgression is bringing it into the public so other people have to see it or engage with it in any way, even mm -hmm. when there's a very explicit demand for that to not lead to any sort of punitive demand. You know, we live in such a fucked up carceral society and we're all so traumatized. I don't know how <laughs> we're supposed to unpack that. I see it again and again just go so badly, you know? Yeah. This speaks to the kinds of silencing that occurs. So in the face of the silence of everyone else, silence that ends up being the only way that someone can make sense of their experience because it offers the only way for them to protect themselves from the denial of others, but also to feel some control over what happened. So we lose control over our stories when we offer enough details to anyone to like narrate the events back to us. Yeah. And that we need things that are like cartoonishly evil, right? Like the only people that have quote unquote gone down in Me Too in any like way are people that have literally in the most explicit sense groomed and raped dozens of women um, <laughs> over years and years. And mm -hmm. Like the evil has to be so cartoonish and like such a representation of what abuse looks like to people. We're going to talk about consensual non-consent on a future episode. And I've talked about how in some of the things I've done in my dynamics, I've been told that I'm being abused when I'm absolutely not. And I'm yeah. like entirely consenting and, and I'm actually doing things that, you know, like are life affirming and are things I absolutely want to do. And I am... I'm not a victim because I'm a submissive. That's not what's happening. But like the vast majority of abuse, you know, like it happens within the structure of the family. It mm -hmm. happens in really mundane ways that are very difficult for people to see, very difficult for people to unpack and maybe impossible, you know, to ever fully unpack to admit that that is where the majority of harm happens, like within the structure of love or within the structure of the family. To admit that and to like really confront that is to really challenge the whole structure and how we understand our own lives and our own potential to be hurt, our own potential to like feel safe. We can also think about how we live in a society that has privileged categories of violators and the violated. So we're not very um, deep into a paradigm or paradigm's too jargony. So like, no, <laughs> <laughs> we're really new in our sort of shared belief that it's possible for someone to rape their spouse. <laughs> like yeah. it used to be that wives were like an unrapeable category, like a husband in a sense, was a bit of a protected class against accusations of sexual misconduct. Like, cops, they're a protected class. Like, they're pretty incapable of being recognized structurally as perpetuators of sexual violence. Like, the state sanctions the violence that they enact against other classes that are privileged in the sense that, as a society, we just accept that they are the site of violence. So, like, sex workers, trans women, black women, indigenous women. We accept that that's just what it means. And then we accept that it's like almost necessary or we can't recognize that as being harm. Like our society is just like so structured around sanctioning that in order to preserve notions of whiteness, of cis femininity. Yeah, it's pretty fucked. Yeah. 
there seems to be a real solidarity between like sex workers and trans women. And in that, like also lots of trans women are sex workers because, you know, it's historically been one of the only types of labor available to us. But also just, I think that when you have someone that ostensibly has leftist and or liberal politics around bodily autonomy, but they're like, hate trans people and or they hate sex workers like um you know they're against like workers protections for sex workers or you know Mm -hmm. they want to ban transness (laughs) from existence (laughs) those are great canaries in the coal mine like this connection to all types of other anti-bodily autonomy type ideologies i think being anti-trans and being anti-sex worker or sex worker rights very much leads to other regressive and eventually like straightforwardly fascist ideologies Mm -hmm. you know like against contraception against abortion you know against gay sex you know and so to think about how there's that kind of intense feeling of taboo like being a trans woman kind of feels like such a transgression of like such a massive societal taboo that it's like it's easier to do the rest of the things because it's like i've already violated like the biggest thing And so it's easier to be like, what more, how much more, you know, can I get like, yeah, there's assimilationist trans women, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, like (laughs) they're not doing so hot. The same sort of unspeakability of the taboo that, you know, we've been talking about with sexual violation that like my life is so gay on all levels and my labor is so like explicitly gay in a way that, you know, the job that I do that even around progressive straight people it's very rare that someone will like inquire into my work and I know this is the experience with sex workers like I'm not a sex worker but I think the sort of things I like talk about and engage with have that level of like where people don't know how to touch it in like you know polite society sort of ways and Mm -hmm. so there's this sort of like weird unspeakability that makes you just feel like really alone and invisible in sort of like normie areas of society which is most of them unless unless you're around other perverts you know and like other transsexuals and whatever I think that that structure of the taboo and creating this kind of silencing and this unspeakability where it's very difficult to bring to people and and then people almost like treat it as this thing that's almost difficult when they do ask questions it's always like you know almost in this hushed way like Mm-hmm. Like, I can't believe I'm even thinking about this. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the shame of victimization, it exists, like, on the level of the survivor being made to feel ashamed of what happened to them because it's shameful, it's taboo. But then, then they're also blamed by others who feel shame on their behalf so that they're just like, oh, I, I don't need to hear about this story or, oh, how could that happen? Or, oh, I'm being made to question this thing that's very uncomfortable. So, again, rooted in these feelings of disgusted version. Mm-hmm. Again, this secondary harm of the social judgment that leads them to be viewed as defiled and disgusting in a whole slew of other ways. Being made to feel disgusting because you were defiled but then also because you're defilable like being blamed for what happened and again like as you said the fact that it's those that are closest to the survivor like in those closed 
spaces that are considered safe and appropriate. So the structure of the family, the structure of an intimate relationship, where it's the most difficult then to assign blame on the perpetrator, because those are the safe, appropriate, normative relationships. So we are really adverse to view certain relationships as breakable, and thus we fail to see lots of different forms of violence and violation. Yeah. That's really, I think, the very strong takeaway. I have a quote by Judith Herman that I think is helpful. It's interesting having worked so closely with hatred of sex, and it's interesting how helpful Oliver Davis and Tim Dean's critique of the normal and their turn towards the deplorable, which mm-hmm. yeah, embracing the deplorable does expose these much deeper harms. And the fact that Judith Herman really was one of the targets of their critique of traumatology. So it's super interesting to be sort of merging these two works. But that's the paradoxical nature of working with trauma as you just are sort of in the muddied waters. Uh, Constant (laughs) self-fracturing and putting back together. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Disgust and aversion shifts the blame and then materializes as feelings of guilt and disgust on the part of the survivor. So to quote Judith Herman, and this is in an analysis of incestual rape, simply by virtue of her existence on earth, she believes that she has driven the most powerful people in her world to do terrible things. Surely then her nature must be evil. The language of the self becomes a language of abomination. Survivors routinely describe themselves as outside the compact of ordinary human relations, as supernatural creatures, or non-human life forms. They think of themselves as witches, vampires, whores, dogs, rats, or snakes. Some use imagery of excrement or filth to describe their sense of inner self. In the words of an incest survivor, I am filled with black slime. If I open my mouth, it will pour out. I think of myself as the sewer slit that a snake would breed upon. So the vilification. I think, again, like the parallels with transness there, like there's been so much written about how it's so common within transness to relate to the sense of the monstrous and create some sort of meaning from that. This quote's near the end of your paper. Do you mind if I read it? We have to look into our own repugnance to actually recognize the existence of the narratives that survivors have to offer. This always constitutes a risk because there is the possibility of freezing if we face horror. But if we actually look with some amount of courage, we find that scenes of horror also contain human faces at which we can look and to which we can extend space within a shared narrative. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I thought that after looking into how the Medusa functions, like, what does it mean to rehabilitate the image of Medusa and recognize that Medusa was a woman, not just the monstrous Gorgon? And how does that change how we understand the entirety of the myth and the entirety of the context? And how does that recontextualize Perseus and Athena? Mm -hmm. And I think... It recontextualizes them in pretty dramatic, horrific ways that are difficult for anyone that wants to certainly maintain the idea that Perseus is purely heroic, for sure. Mm -hmm. Reintegration. I think that's also a very important key point. The ways in which, in the myth, like Medusa was exiled, all that did was situate her as a villain. But I don't think that the way to fix this problem is then 
for us to think, okay, now we have this framework of repugnance now, I can understand and I can see figures such as Medusa as victims and figures like Athena, Neptune, and Perseus as the actual villains. Let's just exile them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's certainly well, not the answer, yeah. And it certainly also speaks to the unspeakability. Like I remember when I was like mm-hmm. writing a message and you gave the advice to avoid using words like gaslight or abuse because they're words that have been like so diluted in meaning that they can mean both everything and nothing where someone can read the worst possible image of them or like literally nothing or just completely dismiss it because it's you know not the most horrific thing because people use it for the most mundane Mm -hmm. just the way that like language often fails us and that we have to be so careful about the way that we use language to try to express our experiences because if we do it in the wrong way if we don't perfectly (laughs) present it we know that it will be simply used to completely dismiss everything about it Mm -hmm. and I think that experience is particularly horrible before anything goes is even about anyone outside of a situation hearing anything about it was not to that point And you're just like trying to convey what happened and hurt. Mm -hmm. And that already that ability to to just like spell out what happened to you in any way is already taken as this like attack and like act to destroy. Yeah. It is a deeply, deeply sickening, disconcerting feeling to have words fail you. Yeah. I'm reminded of a quote by Claudia Card, and I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me, which he says that women are often told that they are being unfair when they call out instances of, like, injustice against men with whom they cannot, for various reasons, completely sever social ties. But it is that society lacks the grace or lacks the ability to give women grace or extend them grace when they navigate those circumstances. Something that happens often to me, like given my work, is I'll have someone, usually a man, come to me and like complain about some accusation that they've heard. They're like, well, this person that I know supposedly experienced this thing from this man that I know, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I and like the, the first thing that I kind of say is like, Why is it that you think that your opinion matters? And what is it that you think that you can do to solve this situation? So first off, like maybe decenter yourself. (laughs) And then secondly, what is it about the narrative that calls an intervention? So did the person confide in you? Were they just looking to confide in you? Then maybe it isn't your business to do anything. Maybe think about the ways in which your need to interrogate and to understand the justice of the situation might actually be doing more harm than good. So maybe what you're doing is you're actually putting the victim or the survivor's narrative to question in ways that are deeply unfair. Or maybe you're asserting yourself in a situation where they did ask you to not do anything. Like maybe what you're going to do is you're going to, like what, you think you're going to aggressively confront someone (laughs) and do what exactly? It's just... I don't know, the hubris. That's something that I come across a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Certainly be a a generous and careful and attentive listener. Then also 
when confronted with such situations, think about what it is that is being asked of you and why it's being asked of you. People don't want to sit in ambiguity, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want to feel implicated in any way. Yeah. We don't live in a world where we're like, okay, like I'm going to attend to and listen to this person's needs because they said that they're hurt and they have communicated this to me and they've communicated that they want to open up and listen to me. But then also I have some like task of like to rehabilitate um, (laughs) or to like still think about the kind of relation that I ought to have or ought not to have with the person with the accusations. No one is asking you to like show up with some punitive extreme measures, but there is a kind of care. There's a kind of attentiveness that is needed. Pregnancy works both ways. No one is expendable, but listen to survivors. (laughs) Yeah. I'm worried that someone's going to listen to this and be like... Aurora's pro abuser because she doesn't think that we should put them in jail. An abuse apology. Well, (laughs) (laughs) we're prison abolitionists, bitch. I know. All too often, these systems are just reaffirmations and actually strengthening of these carceral systems that inevitably harm marginalized people the most. Yeah. That's just the reality. Like, there's no reforming our way out of that one. Nope. Like, that is something that we have to deal with. Yeah. The vast majority of powerful people who do the most horrific shit imaginable, they're n- never going to be the ones that are going to prison. Yeah. And this is an impulse that I had when I was much younger, and it was the very strong, okay, this person did something wrong, cut that tie. What that turns into is you end up just alone <laughs> in your apartment with, like, the two other people who's, like, feminist practices are pure enough that they've never done any misconduct that you've heard of, but you also fail to see the ways in which you might be responsible for having hurt someone in a way that is unintelligible. The sense of angry, carceral white women who don't see the ways in which they perpetuate anti-blackness or transphobia. There's a lot of intense moralizing that goes into those spaces. The thing that's hard about it is that it all comes from a very understandable place because it comes from a place of extreme powerlessness. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like the courts are helping women. So then it gets into this place where you want something. You want the world to make sense and to have like a concrete sense of right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And then when it turns out that that's just kind of on you to figure that out on some level, it's hard for people to deal with. So you brought up the really important observation that I'm pretty open about my status as a survivor, but that I don't talk about my experience. And that's something that I grapple with. And it's actually due to a philosophical viewpoint. And I think my reluctance to share narrative or to rely on narrative is my concern about the ways in which it ends up being taken out of context or the ways in which it ends up being used as a way to discredit the work of survivors. So my reluctance comes from the sort of paradox that I find myself in and being in a somewhat privileged position or being very close to the topic. My experiences, I think, really enrich the ways that I think about it, really enrich the ways that I write about it. Certainly gives me perspective that makes me a more attentive and careful reader and listener. But I'm also really wary about the ways in which 
that experience ends up being the excuse to invalidate my work or to minimize my work because it ends up not being recognized or recognizable as research, as work, as something, again, that I'm not only very closely connected to, but that I'm also very dedicated to researching. So I'm concerned about the ways in which when opening up and sharing narrative, I'm suddenly not a serious researcher. I'm suddenly recognized as just narrative-based. I'm suddenly not taken seriously as a theorist. So rather than my work being work, it's just an insight as a result of my own painful experience. It ends up just allowing people to reappropriate my work in ways that are incredibly re-traumatizing, actually, in ways that are actually really painful. So this project act was appropriated <laughs> in a very painful way because of my status as a survivor. I think that a lot of ink has been spilled about this, about how people are trauma-mined. So we expect women of color, trans women, people who grew up in poverty, for example, like you're expected to lie out your trauma, like to reveal it to the world so that other people can then use it to make their work intelligible. Like you're expected to just be the example, just the little accoutrement, like the shiny little thing that can be tacked on to something that's considered real. And I hate that. And I hate that impulse in academia. You write in your essay, silence can be the only way for a survivor to make sense of rape. Because not only does it offer the ability for the survivors themselves to deny what has happened, but also because it allows them to feel some control over their lives. We lose control over our stories once we offer enough details for someone else to narrate the events of our lives back to us. Along with the fear of further loss of control comes the fear of judgment. Definitely my experience and then just also like watching other situations play out and especially like high profile ones that have been media frenzies. The more details that are brought out, the more that it just can be endlessly dissected. And in the same mm -hmm. way that like people can project their own narratives and their own desires onto almost anything. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, every single time the minutiae become entirely public, it does feel like this intense objectification and then a re-traumatizing. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole thing with translit is that until the writing of Nevada and like Topside Press, the only way to really get books published like as a trans woman was to write a memoir that was basically a hyper objectification of your own transition and, and a laying out of, of your trauma. And that was really the only way to, to get published in any sort of real way. And also for a cis audience you know, to like explain yourself. Mm -hmm. And I definitely know that there's certainly like a call for it. Like you can get attention in a concrete way, in this sort of voyeuristic way when you lay out the things that have happened to you or, you know, the ways the world has harmed you or whatever. Yeah. And especially when someone is outside of your subjectivity and has never had your experience, even for people incredibly close to me, don't understand things. It's been a very painful experience to try to get some of those people to like understand because it requires attempting to put them in your shoes, a subjectivizing that, that they'll never actually experience. 
mm-hmm. people love being or they want to be entertained by trauma. Like if, if they're going to interact with trauma, it needs to be immediately entertaining or it needs to be in a way that is accessible to the point of being appropriable. Again, I see this as a huge problem in, in feminist philosophy, <laughs> in academia of, well, I'm not going to, again, interrogate the ways in which I'm plugged into this system of trauma and re-traumatization, but this is a very extreme story. It's going to entertain, it's going to titillate my audience. And that titillation also, like, it's so fucked up. And it's just, like, such a misuse of the work. It just doesn't doesn't treat the work with the respect and the dignity that it deserves to be. Like, there are more or less ethical ways to engage with narratives, and that is not the way. <laughs> I will say that. That is not the way. So, because I don't want to... Like in my being critical of and my reluctance to share narratives, like it's not the narratives that are at fault. It is the audience that just fails fails to lend the right kind of ear, fails to respect the integrity and the dignity of narratives just because, again, they're seen as excuses to either interrogate the testimony or they're just seen as something that we can just plug into our theory, like that we can just sort of uses as a titillating example. Mm-hmm. So yeah, really fucked up. And I also think that that is a really common problem of basically any writers that aren't white men, but like, you know, like women, trans people, people of color, is that when you write fiction, it's hard to be taken as seriously in the same sort of like objectifying way that you were talking about, like being used for someone else's theory, because everything is taken to be memoir. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is is like, oh, this is just a thing that happened to you. You know, the idea that there's that there's like craft going on in what yeah. you're doing and that you have that same ability as like, quote unquote, great American writers is impossible to to conceptualize for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, often this sort of retrospective autobiographical-ness is put onto lots of marginalized authors' fiction work in a way that often just like very, very misleading and kind of just ignores, you know, like maybe this person is just very talented at their craft and like obviously everyone informs by like personal experience, but that's also like not what not the only thing that literature is mm-hmm. I think that tells us a lot about the way that we like think about narrative mm-hmm. because if a white dude is telling it and it doesn't stray outside of those bounds then it's just the default everyone can relate to it it doesn't have to be like this fringe experience mm-hmm. so despite the fact that in my work so in any of my public facing work I don't utilize narrative or at least I haven't yet. Like maybe there'll be a time that I do like a narrative turn. So this paper that maybe we'll make available for patrons or honestly, dear listeners, please email me and I'm happy to circulate it. But despite the fact that this project and despite the fact that my research isn't at all narrative based, although it is to the extent that we can't divorce our, ourselves entirely from our writing, like it's certain is informed by narrative, it was appropriated as narrative. So (laughs) you call um, it uh, plagiarized. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Okay. Well, I'll say (laughs) having read both papers (laughs) involved, not talking about horrorism, talking about a different paper. I was presented with a writing that utilized a lot of the work that I very carefully teased out and that I traced out of horrorism. That was theoretical work. It was the building 
of a notion of repugnance, but rather than being recognized as a contribution, I was quoted as having an insight that Medusa was a rape victim. And then I was quoted and access to this work was privileged because it's unpublished and is still pretty uncirculated, although we did talk about the grand themes. So fingers crossed that maybe someday this work will find a home. So I was quoted as a rape victim. The quotes that were pulled talked about embodiment in a way that felt really objectifying. So I was trying to talk about the ways in which we turn away from survivors or we make them feel disgusting. We fail to attend to the nuances of their experience. And my work was then totally subjected to that same kind of treatment. And it was, frankly, a pretty awful experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's also not like it was improved upon. It was a much worse essay. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to cut that out. Okay. <laughs> um, that, that's, my, that's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so it just goes to show that once something is out there, we're so reluctant to take certain contributions seriously that, and we just like there's a minimization. Yeah. Um, and that the person that did this was so much more power than you and exploiting that power, that very direct power over you, you know, yeah. like within these institutions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Still going around presenting and sharing this work <laughs> without the proper at attribution. And they have yet to apologize. Yeah. Recognize the harm. Um. <laughs> uh, villain arc. Okay. Um, villain arc, yeah. Ending it on that note of the way that even the work itself goes through that same process and yeah. the way that that experience has been unspeakable and also like really alienating within the very communities that it's supposedly created within. Mm -hmm. uh, or for, or, or the ones that ostensibly care about the work just like yeah care, care about reading philosophy yeah, <laughs> yeah. but at, at what point if we fail to actually embody the kind of values that we're writing about like it's not just that we're bullshit it also kind of makes the work bullshit i really strongly believe that yeah so, i think that makes it the villain arc is that the fact that even with the tiptoeing around it's more problematic that i'm being honest about this experience than it is that this happened to me that the people that allowed this to happen like let this happen again i'm speaking very vaguely because of fear of retaliation aurora <laughs> are you telling a narrative <laughs> i know i know so yeah you got to be careful because it's it out and then suddenly you're the villain suddenly you didn't toe the line correctly <laughs> oh no don't accuse me of narration of narrative building i don't know <laughs> Well, I mean, that's certainly what the people with a lot of power over you did to you. Yeah. So while you like just were like, oh, please cite me. Don't objectify me. Or just really like the why are you doing this? I think that also comes back to like that when it comes to so many types of violation, you know, we often think about violation as like taking place, like having to have this huge punitive response. But lots of the time what people just want is like, some form of acknowledgement yeah and an apology right yeah and that that is so often the reason things become what they are is because that complete inability to even say the thing exists in the first place yeah that's yeah fucked up <laughs> yeah yeah we allowed to use the platform like this you know who you are and you know who you <laughs> did please just apologize <laughs>
Uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, you um, plagiarized a paper about rape from a rape victim. Like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, that's <clears throat> pretty, pretty bad. But I'm really looking forward to our villain art for season two. Like, I think your paper like really lays out a lot of the groundwork for lots of the things that we're going to be exploring in the coming weeks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I can't wait. I'm ready for our deplorable season mm -hmm. two. Um, well, thanks for all of your amazing work, Aurora. And... Um, mm -hmm. I think that's it. Thank you for taking the time to like so carefully engage with my work. Anytime. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> if you would like to help support our work and keep making this happen, you can subscribe to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash drunkchurch. You can also go to either Aurora or I's websites and tip us through Venmo, which, you know, we have in our bios. And we appreciate all of you for coming and listening and bathing in the blood with us. Mm -hmm. We'll see you next time. And also engagement is always free and we love to hear your comments. So if there's something you found to be especially interesting or provocative, then let us know. It's free to like and to share and proliferate what we think are important conversations. Yeah, tell a friend. Send it to your mom or something. <laughs> Send it to your mom. <laughs> be bold. Uh, <laughs> yeah, be bold. expand yeah. our yeah. range of influence. <laughs> mom, here's this podcast that's radically <laughs> family abolitionist. Yeah. <laughs> wink, wink. Uh, yeah. Yeah, honestly, send this episode to your ex. That's free. That's true. <laughs> the share button is always free. Mm -hmm. Well, love you all, and uh, God bless. <laughs> bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Bless you for building a new dream Just when my old dream crumbled so helplessly In that vine-covered chapel on the hill Your face was a hymn that lingers still So bless you, my darling, my angel Heaven is mine and life is divine Bless you, darling, for being an angel. Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me. Bless you for building a new dream. Just when my old dream crumbled so 
helplessly. In that vine-covered chapel on the hill Your face was a hymn that lingers still So bless you, my darling, my angel Heaven is more 